0: person chronicle about a divorced woman's quest for psycho-spiritual healing. I hoped they would be generous enough, though, to understand that I had needed to write that book for my own personal reasons, and maybe everyone would let it slide, and then we could all move on. That was not how things turned out. And just to be clear, the book that you are now holding is not a tough-minded story about manly men doing manly things either. Never let it be said that you were not warned. Another question people ask me all the time these days is how Eat, Pray, Love has changed my life. That one is difficult to answer because the scope has been so massive. A useful analogy from my childhood. When I was little, my parents once took me to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. We stood there together in the Hall of Oceans. My dad pointed up toward the ceiling at the life-size model of the great blue whale that hung suspended over our heads. He tried to impress upon me the size of this gargantuan creature, but I could not see the whale. I was standing right beneath the whale, mind you, and I was staring directly up at the whale, but I could not absorb the whale. My mind had no mechanism for comprehending something so large. All I could see was the blue ceiling and the wonderment on everyone else's faces. Obviously, something exciting was happening here, but I could not grasp the whale itself. That's how I feel sometimes about Eat, Pray, Love. There came a point in that book's trajectory where I could no longer sanely absorb its dimensions, So I gave up trying and turned my attention to other pursuits. Planting a garden helped. There's nothing like picking slugs off your tomato plants to keep things in perspective. That said, it has been a bit of a perplexity for me to figure out how, after that phenomenon, I would ever write unselfconsciously again. Not to act all falsely nostalgic for literary obscurity, but in the past I had always written my books in the belief that very few people would read them. For the most part, of course, that knowledge had always been depressing. In one critical way, though, it was comforting. If I humiliated myself too atrociously, at least there wouldn't be many witnesses. Either way, the question was now academic. I suddenly had millions of readers awaiting my next project. How in the world does one go about writing a book that will satisfy millions? I didn't want to blatantly pander, but I also didn't want to dismiss out of hand all those bright, passionate, and predominantly female readers, not after everything we'd been through together. Uncertain of how to proceed, I proceeded anyhow. Over the course of a year, I wrote an entire first draft of this very book, 500 pages, but I realized immediately upon completion that it was somehow wrong. The voice didn't sound like me. The voice didn't sound like anybody. The voice sounded like something coming through a megaphone, mistranslated. I put that manuscript away, never to be looked at again, and headed back out to the garden for some more contemplative digging, poking, and pondering. I want to make it clear here that this was not exactly a crisis, that period when I could not figure out how to write, or at least when I could not figure out how to write naturally. Life was really nice otherwise, and I was grateful enough for personal contentment and professional success that I wasn't about to manufacture a calamity from this particular puzzle, but it certainly was a puzzle. I even started wondering if maybe I was finished as a writer. Not being a writer anymore didn't seem like the worst fate in the world, if indeed that were to be my fate— but I honestly couldn't tell yet. I had to spend a lot more hours in the tomato patch, is all I'm saying, before I could sort this thing out. In the end, I found a certain comfort in recognizing that I could not, cannot, write a book that would satisfy millions of readers, not deliberately anyhow. The fact is, I do not know how to write a beloved bestseller on demand. If I knew how to write beloved bestsellers on demand, I can assure you that I would have been writing them all along because it would have made my life a lot easier and more comfortable ages ago. But it doesn't work that way, or at least not for writers like me. We write only the books that we need to write or are able to write, and then we must release them, recognizing that whatever happens to them next is somehow none of our business. For a multitude of personal reasons, then, the book that I needed to write was exactly this book. Another memoir with extra socio historical bonus sections about my efforts to make peace with the complicated institution of marriage. The subject matter was never in doubt, it's just that I had trouble there for a while finding my voice. Ultimately, I discovered that the only way I could write again at all was to vastly limit, at least in my own imagination, the number of people I was writing for. So I started completely over, and I did not write this version of Committed for millions of readers. Instead, I wrote it for exactly 26 readers. To be precise, the names of those 26 readers are Maud, Carol, Catherine, Anne, Darcy, Deborah, Sophie, Susan, Cree, Kat, Bernadette, Jen, Jana, Cheryl, Raya, Iva, Erica, Nichelle, Sandy, Anne, Patricia, Tara, Linda, Laura, Sarah, and Margaret.